So if you're not already, we're headed to James chapter 5. We're going to read from verse 1. Let me begin with a story because all good sermons begin with a story. I had an interesting and a little unusual conversation this week as a friend of mine who owns a removal company. And it would have been midweek. He drove over to my house to see me, jumped out of his car. He was very excited. He said, Andrew, you're not going to believe where I've been and what I've done this week. I said, tell me, I'm all ears. He said, well, you probably have heard that we've got a new Governor General. Has anyone caught up with the news there? His Excellency David Hurley was sworn in. And my friend, he said, he was so excited. He said, I got the contract to move him into his house. He said, you wouldn't believe it. Five storage containers worth of stuff. He said, I was back and forth for days. I was there. He said, there was... The pomp and there was the ceremony, there was all sorts of uh, official police and people around everywhere. One day, so I was driving along, driving along and uh, he said, all of a sudden I was in my truck heading toward the Governor General's house and there was this group of police. One guy swung in front of me, the other guys blocked me off and they jumped out of their cars looking like they were at attention, ready for business. I said, what are you doing here? He said, explain, look, I'm just, just the removal guy, I'm just coming in and out, I'm moving some stuff. And they looked at him and they said, well, you're not going anywhere because His Excellency is about to arrive. So we need to clear the driveway. And in fact, he said, the policeman looked at me and he said, and for future notice, the front door is not for people like you. You need to go around the back to the service entrance. So he was a little put off by this. And then as he described the scene, sure enough, within a, a very short period of time, there was a flotilla of black BMWs. What do you call a group of BMWs? Is it a group? A horde, a herd, something. There they all were. Here comes His Excellencies. And the way he described it, he says, I was standing there cordoned off by all the police. And then all of a sudden, the motorcade stops. And the window rolls down. And there's His Excellency. He says, Hi, Jeff. This is this guy's name. He says, Jeff, how you doing, mate? Come on over here. Come on in with me. Leave your truck there. Don't worry about it. Just we'll, we'll go in together. I'll show you around the place. And he said, I gave a very polite nod to the policeman who wouldn't let me through. And... <laughs> He's not yet a believer, <laughs> made his way with the Governor General into the house. But he said, you wouldn't believe it, he's just a lovely guy, he's down to earth. And in fact, he said at the end of the time there, so we moved him in the house and, uh, and David Hurley, the Governor General, he said, look, I've got this old pair of work boots, I've only worn them once, but I never used them, would you like them? And so, sure enough, my buddy, he pulls the pair of boots out of the truck and he said, as soon as I got these, Andrew, I thought of you. And so here they are. Here's a pair of once-worn Governor-General boots. I did think that I might bring them along for show and tell. I thought, that's overdoing it a little. So I don't have any boots to produce, but next time you're at my house, you can ask to see the new Governor-General boots. As I thought about that story, I tell it for two reasons, because we're going into some interesting territory. I thought you might need something light to ease us in there. But it is amazing how quickly, I'll speak for myself here, how quickly my heart can be moved and attracted to things. Here we had a pair of slightly worn boots and two grown men getting very excited <laughs> by their procurement. How quickly is my heart moved by stuff? by things that in the light of eternity are of 
little worth. And what James is going to give us here in in chapter 5, verse 1, is he is going to give us a warning. In fact, this particular portion is entitled in my Bible, A Warning to the Rich. This is a warning sign. And if you've ever seen a warning sign, which I'm sure you'll have, you'll know that a warning sign is not hidden away. It's not off to the side. It is front and center, normally painted in the brightest colors that you can find with various languages there, often graphic pictures of someone falling off a cliff or into the mouth of an alligator or whatever the particular warning sign might be representing. So it's in your face. It's bold. And not only is it bold and in your face, but it's there for a reason. It's there to warn whoever might come across this particular sign that this is hazardous territory. You are treading upon dangerous ground. There are potential pitfalls to be aware of. Ignore the warning at your own peril. So with that in mind, are we braced? Are we ready to purvey and survey and have a look at this warning sign that James gives to the rich. He begins this way, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. How many feel a bit more like an ouch than an amen? This is a warning sign in all of its brutal honesty. But what is it that James is warning us of? What is he talking about? Well, let's first of all see who this warning sign is addressed to. It says, come now, you rich. This is a warning to the rich. And there can be a tendency as we read this, I think, certainly there is for me, to think, oh, good. Well, this one doesn't apply to me. This is for those other people. In fact, I, I even surveyed a few people here and I said, asked them a simple question. Who do you think are the rich people? And not one person put up their hand and said, well, it's me. And probably most of us in this room, I don't know all of you well enough, would say, well, it's, it's definitely not me. The rich people, they're the ones who live in this sort of a house. They drive this sort of a car, they take these sort of holidays and they live their lives, conduct their lives in this sort of manner. Well, let me give you just a few statistics and I'm not promoting anything in particular and let me say up front that statistics like this are notoriously hard to measure. It's very hard to get an accurate picture. But in our planet, in our current time in human history, there is statistically more than 1.3 billion who live in extreme poverty. Now, that means basically they, they don't have anything. They don't have enough even to provide for the basic essentials of life. Nearly half of the world's population, 
more than 3 billion people live on less than $2.50 a day. And I'm sure we've all heard statistics like this before, but let me keep going. Nearly 80% of the world's population live on $10 a day. And then in the other portion of current economic status, to be in the top 1%. So we're talking about the rich of the rich, the cream of the crop. Currently, somewhere between, if your income is around about $35,000 to $40,000, not only will you get a nice tax bonus this year, thank you, Scott, but you're also in the top 1% of income earners in the world. Does that bring it home a little bit for anyone? And obviously, these statistics are based upon this gross inequality across the world. The rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. I'm not trying to put anything on anyone here. All I'm trying to say is maybe there's something in this warning sign for some of us, if not all of us, in this room. It's getting very quiet here. Can you just take a deep breath? As my dentist says to me, I promise this will only hurt a little. It's another sermon. I would suggest to us, living in the West, that we would do very well to heed this warning. We are living in treacherous times. There are potential pitfalls and there are traps that if we're not careful, every one of us will so easily be ensnared by. And so what James has given us is, is this part prophetic warning sign. He's not talking about a particular group. Most of the rest of his letter has been to this group, to that group, to these particular people. Remember, he's a pastor. He's really talking to his church, but it's almost this prophetic picture of a group of people defined only as the rich. I want us to catch that. He's not saying the Pharisees who have money or this particular group or the people who have this much income. This is a group of people identified only as rich, so it's more than them having money. There's a sense in which they're finding their identity in their wealth and in their riches. That's who he's speaking to, anybody who would have that propensity to find their identity in wealth. And there's two things in particular, two reasons, two motivations behind him issuing such a strong and graphically depicted warning. And the first one is really simple. Number one reason for him giving us this warning sign is that to trust in riches is a flawed pursuit. Riches will always fail you. He begins, he says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches will fail you. He's almost saying, if you really knew the path that this was going to take you down, if you really knew the place that you would end up setting your life on such a pursuit, you would weep and you would howl, weeping and howling. There's a particular uh, historian, a social crit critic, I've quoted him before, I came across him probably a decade or, so, decade or so ago, Arthur Schlesinger. And his primary work was exploring extensively and in detail the history of 20th century American liberalism. So that was his speciality, did a number of papers, much research in this area. 
And he observed that one of the greatest characteristics of our modern society was something, he coined this phrase, he termed it inextinguishable discontent. And this is a quote. He says, we want a better job with a better pay. We want a better boss, better relationships and a better car and a better backhand in tennis. We have this propensity to live endlessly for the next thing, the next weekend, the next vacation, the next purchase, the next experience. We're never satisfied, never content, and always looking enviously to those who have what we have not attained or accumulated. Inextinguishable discontent. Now, if I'm honest, I see not only a bit of that in the world around us, I see just a little bit of that in here. Anybody else feel a bit of, this is getting a little uncomfortable. And this guy's not coming at all from a Christian point of view, but even he writes with evidence about the futility of using earthly riches, earthly pursuits to satisfy what I would say, my words, is an eternal longing. We were created for more. Created for more. this pursuit, looking for money, looking for success, looking to your tennis game. I know it's Wimbledon. I know we're a sport-loving nation. There's nothing wrong with sport in and of itself. But as a source of your eternal happiness, it will never satisfy. Get this. I came across this statistic just recently. The average amount of advertisements that a person will see in a day. This is in a day is somewhere they believe between four to 5,000 ads that you will view. Now that's talking about listening on the radio, that's talking about all the online social media, so it probably depends how much you're logging on to Facebook. Some of us are probably way over quota on ads. Who gets frustrated by the ads that just everywhere? We're literally bombarded by marketing messages. And what is the general consensus of these messages? They all say, well, you will be happy when? You'll be happy when you take this holiday. You'll be happy when you have this particular house, when your children wear these particular type of clothes. You'll be happy when you do these things and when you become these things. And if we're not careful, it's so easy for our hearts to be captivated by these things. If we were to honestly before the Lord answer this question, what would we say? I will be happy when? I will be happy when? And it's such an important question to ask because if you answer it honestly, you'll discover the driver of your happiness. And there's only one driver, there's only one source of happiness that will ever satisfy. Anyone want to guess who it is? It's not a thing, it's a person, isn't it? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not what we would put in there, it's that we would put anything in there at all. So there's the first warning. He's saying you've got to recognize if you really realize where this path was going to take you to build your life and your happiness upon riches, you would be weeping and howling because it is an endless inextinguishable pursuit that is never going to find satisfaction 
apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's a second aspect to this, often overlooked, but I actually feel like this is equally as important. He talks about this. So he talks about your gold and silver have corroded. But then in verse 4, he says, Behold, the wages of the laborer who mowed your field are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. What is it that he's saying? Let me tell you what he's not saying. I don't believe that he's saying here that everybody who has any kind of wealth has obtained it dishonestly. All of us would say, well, that's not true. Certainly, we could probably think of some examples. We won't mention names. But I can also think of many examples of many wealthy people who are genuine, honest, giving, loving people. So that's not what he is saying at all, that anyone who's wealthy is corrupt. What I do believe that he is saying is that he is calling out not a corrupt people as much as a corrupt system. So think this through a little bit with me. I know it's early, it's Sunday morning. Just don't go to sleep just yet. Just work with me through this. I wrote this down. I'll read it out. I think it's true. If not, you can send me an email and let me know during the week. See, I think it doesn't matter what the system looks like. It's not a particular system that's in question. It doesn't matter if it's capitalist or communist or democratic, autocratic, plurocratic, any other system. If you look at the epoch, the stanzas of human history, you'll see one reality that the wealth of the wealthy always rides upon the oppression of the poor and the workers. Now, there's your mission. Go and see if you can prove me wrong and find the exception to the rule. You see, what he is doing is he's calling out these systems of mankind that always find their success and their failure in that they're anchored in humanity's undeniable, insatiable propensity towards greed. Why is capitalism so successful? And I'm not speaking against capitalism here. Don't hear me wrong. Because it elevates, it legalizes, it encourages greed. The wealth of the wealthy always rides on the back of the oppression of the poor workers. So you might say, oh, well, maybe that was once. Maybe that's, it's a different society now. It's a different era. It's 21st century. It doesn't happen anymore. Well, let me give you a couple of examples. It's just what came to mind as I was preparing this message. There was an article that grabbed my attention beginning of this year, and this was the title, Bloomberg.com. It's probably still there if you look it up. This was the title, Why Your Morning Coffee Might Cost More in 2019. And I think I went a few shades whiter, broke out in a cold sweat. There was a moment of panic to think that my coffee might cost me more. This is what the article suggested. It said this, that it's been a big year talking about 2018 into 19 for the companies that sell coffee, but not for the growers that supply it. Global coffee increased in the season from 174.5 million bags up 15.6 million from the previous year. And the big companies, this article suggested, were raking it in. Coca-Cola spent $5 billion to get into the Java space. Nestle made its third largest deal in 152 years of its history to pay billions of dollars for the right to market coffee products. And Starbucks, get this, is now expanding into China at the rate of a new coffee shop every 15 hours. That's a lot of coffee. 
Someone out there is drinking a heck of a lot of coffee. It's not just me, praise the Lord. And yet, in the midst of of these companies that are are making billion-dollar deals, it says the problem is with the last season is that the oversupply has favoured the consumer end rather the consumer end of the sector overproduces. And in that same period, there was historically low prices for coffee beans from 2018 into 2019, meaning that literally hundreds of thousands of farmers, particularly in Brazil and South America, had to close up shop and go out of business. The statement it made in this article is you simply can't have everybody in the chain winning at the same time. Now, that's all despite at least a decade of fair trade, and this is not a coffee spill here, so let me move on very quickly from coffee. I say that as one example of let's look at the world in which we live. In this current system, who is it that is winning out of such a scenario? Is it the wealthy or the worker? Okay, do we need to go back to the start? Start? No, it's the wealthy, yeah. Who is it that's not winning out of this? It is the workers. So could it be that 2,000 years later we see exactly the same realities unfolding in our modern 21st century economy and society that we did that James is addressing back in his particular period? I would suggest yes, absolutely. I also had the Australian dairy industry. Here is another example. We won't go there in the interest of time. And as I looked at that, I thought, isn't it interesting? I'm preparing my sermon. I'm talking about coffee and the dairy industry. And clearly, either I have a very one-track mind as I prepare my sermons, just thinking about coffee, when am I getting my next coffee, or the Lord is really challenging me, not just in this area, but in many areas of my life, because it is too easy for me to just sip away, I'm a nice flat white latte to convince myself it's just a coffee. That's all it is. It's just a coffee. It's just a cup of coffee, okay? There's no bigger story at play here. It's very easy for me. It doesn't take much convincing to satisfy myself into apathy, to indulge myself to sleep about the reality of the worlds and the inequalities and all of the other stuff. It's just a coffee. Anyone else find that? It's not really going on. And, you know, I've had moments in my life to be so stirred about some of these things. I remember traveling through India, staying in this this five-star hotel across from a a shanty town, a, a slum area, and there was dead bodies there in the morning. I said to the driver, Shouldn't we do something? He's like, no, no, there's just just no one there to bury him. No one cares about him. Someone will come and collect the bodies and drag them off. And the moment you leave the hotel in the car, there's women carrying their babies without shoes, banging on your door, trying to to get anything they can out of you, just enough food to live. And you can't witness that and not be moved. The problem is that for me, I moved far too little by some of the things around me. And then very quickly, I'm just back to, it's just a coffee. It's just a cup of coffee. Satisfying myself into apathy. And this is what the Lord says. He says, but the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. He hears their cries. 
His longing is for us as well to be a people who would hear the cries of those who are in need in the world around us. So what do we do? Let's, let's just talk and bring things in from that particular perspective. We've looked at perhaps the problem. We've looked at the warning signs. Okay, and, and it'd be easy from now. And so often the, you know, the course of action would be we have to rebel. We've got to rebel against the system. We've got to resist. We've got to remember that the gospel message is never a message of rebellion or resistance. It's a message of redemption. It's a, a message of reaching out with hope to the hopeless. It's a message of bringing freedom to the captives. So I'm going to talk about that, but it begins with us. Allowing God to stir our hearts for the things that are all around us. And I've talked about India. I've talked about the coffee trade in South America. If we open our eyes, there are people struggling. There's people suffering. There's people in need. And often they're right next door. If we would just allow God to stir our hearts, to be moved to reach out to those around us. So what do we do? Really two things, and obviously we're talking here primarily, James is talking about wealth and money, but this applies in every area of our lives, our time, stewardship of, of what we have. Jesus says this in Matthew 6.24. So I, I want us to capture how important this is. This is not just about, okay, what do we do then? This is a picture of, of what we do with our weekly paycheck. Jesus says this, Matthew 6.24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. He's saying there's no wiggle room here. This is not just about how you'll spend your money. This is about who you will serve with your life. This is about who will be your passion. He's talking about love and hate. And they're mutually exclusive. He's talking about devotion. He's talking about who you're going to serve. I mean, this is, this is massive. This is not just where my money is going, but what is the course of my life going to take? And so the first thing we need to do is we need to live a life of radical loving. There's only two. There's only two things. That's, that's the first one. We need to make sure that our affections, that our motivations, that everything that we are is under the Lordship, is caught up in the reality of the King and His kingdom. Here's another passage. 1 Timothy 6 Verse 9, those who desire to be rich fall into a temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Here's the picture. There's a whole system. He's saying riches are corrupt and the system is corrupt, but there's a system that's drawing you in. It's calling you. Just been watching uh, with uh, my girls. They are ridiculously madly keen on the new Aladdin movie, which has just been released. It's so funny because I grew up on that movie as a cartoon and hearing all these same songs. And you know, there's this scene as, uh, as Aladdin and his monkey friend Abu, they're going through the, the, the cave of wonders. 
And they're told, don't touch anything but the lamp. And it's like they just can't help themselves. They see the, the big gold and, and, and they know it's wrong. Everything in them knows that it's wrong. There's just this innate propensity towards the things that glitter and shine. Our hearts are moved so easily by gumboots. When we're created for so much more, we're created to be moved with affection, to be desiring, to be ruled over by the King of glory. It's this life of radical loving. It is a trap that will ensnare and enslave you. I've been in this place. I'm preaching to myself here. All my thoughts can be, well, you know, I've, I've got to keep my job at a certain level. I've got to do what I can to progress my career. I need a certain level of savings. I need a certain size house. I need a, a car that's manufactured in a certain year. I need enough in my super for security. I need a bigger house, an extension, a better caravan, whatever it is. And all of a sudden, we're entrapped and we're enslaved and all of our life and our affection and our desire is caught up in this failed, broken system. And Jesus came to redeem and say, there's another way to live your life. Let me set you free from that. It's only going to enslave you. It's what James is saying. You'll be weeping and wailing because you've built your whole life on something that's going to fade. And then Jesus comes with his offer of life and says, or you can build your life on something that will never fail. It will endure. Come and secure your affection and your love and your desire. Place it completely in me. That's number one. We live a, a life of radical loving we continually even as we do this morning lord don't let us be distracted move our hearts with the things that move your heart don't let our affections be swayed wherever we're off track help us recalibrate to that place where we're burning only for you where you are our desire and then the second thing that comes out of that it's a life of radical loving and it's a life of radical giving, a life of radical giving. Matthew twenty-two fifteen describes this encounter. The Pharisees are planning, they're scheming. They're wondering, how can we trap Jesus? And they hatch this little plan. They come to him and they ask him a question about paying tribute to the Roman authorities. We know the story well, I'm sure, but Jesus calls for a denarii. He says, show me that coin. Whose image, whose inscription is on it? And they say, well, it's Caesar's. And he says the famous pronouncement, famous quote, will render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, will give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's? A part of that's easy. Okay, well, so he's saying, yep, it's just money. Just give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But what about the second part of that equation? What is it that God wants? What, what is it that is God's? The coin was in the image of the emperor and therefore belonged to the emperor. 
we are in the image of the one who created us. So if we're in his image, what of our lives is his? It's everything. Now, sometimes I think we get so caught up, well, how much do we give to God? Is it, is it 10%? Is it more than 10%? I think if you read Scripture, you cannot get away from this reality that there's no percentage. It's all or nothing. It is an all or nothing deal. He is a God who has radically given everything that he has. And he gives to us good gifts. He loves to give to us good gifts. He saves us. He rescues us. He redeems us. He gives and he keeps on giving so that we in turn might be a people of radical givers. This description here, I think it's so powerful in, in, in the warning that James gives us. He says this. He says, your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you. Well, eat your flesh like fire. I love he just puts that in there. No idea what that means. But you've laid up treasure or hoarded up or piled up treasure in the last days. He's saying, you, you, you see, all that stuff that you've piled up, all of that stuff that you thought was your security and it was your right and it was your everything, that's the very thing that will stand in judgment against you as you stand before the Lord. You say, Lord, but look at my pretty pile of stuff. How impressed do you think the Lord's going to be? And it's not just what they have done. It's what they haven't done with what they did have. He's saying, you've got so many garments, your wardrobe's so full of clothes that half of them are moth-eaten. You've got so much money that's just sitting in piles that it's rusted and it's corroded. See, the world says your time here is short. Just live to take to get whatever you can. Live, laugh and be merry. You, d you deserve it. You've earned it. The gospel says your time here is short. You've been given such an extravagant gift that you might give everything you have and spend it for his glory. So what's it going to be as we stand before the Lord, you know, as I know it's all by grace, but this, you know, this warning sign here of people who trust in riches. Having piles of stuff standing as evidence against us. I was just thinking this through in a couple of applications. For example, most of you would know that we are um, embarking upon a, a building project. Interesting sermon to be preaching in the midst of saving money for a building. But something that I've loved about us as a church over the last 20 years, in fact, I, uh, I asked our, the lady who does our accounts, I said, can you give me a figure for how much we have given to mission works, both locally and internationally, over the last 10 years and the 20 years, and she was too busy, so she couldn't give me a figure. That's fine. It's the end of the year. But I would estimate that it was at least over 1 million. Did, you, did we look it up in the end? Oh, what's the figure? 10 years, 20 years? 180,000 a year over 10 years. That's 1.8 over 20 years. You do the maths. I was going to say millions. If you want a specific figure, you can see. Thank you for looking that after. Look, looking that up. 
So it just seemed to me, as I examined that, I thought about what is our legacy as a church over 10 to 20 years? What would have happened if we had put all that aside in a savings account? We'd be approaching this new building with a lot more money than we have now. And to be honest, as part of me that was thinking, that would be really nice, wouldn't it? But then ultimately, you know, Lord forbid, if I was to stand before the Lord after I preached this sermon, although I do think that would be a pretty good way to go, preaching the word and then the next time I'm standing before him in glory. Just saying, putting it out there. And having a conversation with the Lord and he says, so, so you know, what did the church do for the last 10 years? And if all I had to show was, well, well, well Lord, let me show you this building. You're not going to believe what we did with it. Do you like the color scheme? How about our audiovisual entertainment? You know, we, we just worked hard to make sure everything, the colors, the decor, it just... Wouldn't each of us rather stand before the Lord and say, you know what, I don't have anything materially to show. But I tell you what, we were so generous. We built or helped build an orphanage and... Thailand for AIDS babies. We fed hungry mouths in Africa. We supported works in the slums and leper colonies of India. We gave and we gave and we gave. And when it hurt, we gave some more. Now, I want you to hear my heart. I'm not seeing, saying that it's one or the other, that we've got to be anti-money. John Wesley, I think, he was the one who said, make as much as you can, save as much as you can, give as much as you can. It's not that we would make money. If God's blessed you to make money, then make money. Just don't make it your Lord. Just don't ever be drawn into the trap of a system that will take us away from why we're here. We've got one life to live such a short period of time. Let's be a people who love radically, continually calibrating our hearts and who give everything that we can for his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Is there someone who can come and play keys? Thank you. I just want to give you a moment. It's my gift to you this morning in the quietness we bring this to a close. And we're just going to ask the Lord to do what he needs to do to shine the light of his loving, merciful, but at times revealing grace upon our hearts. Jesus said this in Matthew 6, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's almost like God's given us this gift. It's a revealing gift. It's a challenging gift. If you want to know where your heart is, 
this morning, where, where it truly is, where your affections are, what's really ruling over your life. Jesus has just said here, look at your treasure. Because where your treasure is, that's where you'll find your heart. So God, as we just bring this time to a close, I'm the first one to pray, Lord, help, help. Help me not to be someone who just sips apathetically on a cup of coffee, indulging myself, satisfying myself to sleep. Lord, I, I want my heart to be moved. I want our hearts as your people, as a church, to be moved that our love, that our desire, that our certainty, that our security would never, never be in the things that this world offers. Not in our riches, not in our superannuation, not in the cars we drive, in the clothes we wear. But Lord, that the, the only source, the only place that we rest, the burning passion of our hearts would just be you. It'd be you and only you. God, do that work in my heart. And again, I don't mind if I spend all morning repenting, but God, I am so sorry for the times where I've just been helplessly caught up in wealth and in stuff and in status. And, oh, God, just do something in my heart because... I want you more than anything else in this world. It's all yours. It's all for you. My life is yours. This church is yours. Everything we have is yours, God. And Lord, out of that place of just allowing you to stir our hearts afresh, would you cause us to to be a generous people. God, I'm, I'm so thankful to be in a church like this that has for years been a generous, giving church. Thankful for that. But Lord, let it continue. Let it, let it be exponential in our desire, not just to build buildings and, and have the latest stuff, but to give sacrificially to see people meet you, to see lives transformed to see your name exalted, Lord, in our city, to reach out to the broken, to love them. May we be a giving people, Lord, not just in our money, but certainly with our finances, with our time, Lord, with the things that we invest our lives in. And God, I, I, I know I need your help. Come, Spirit of God. Help us. May there be something in our hearts, just that, that line in the sand, that conviction that says, yes, we're, we're going to make a change. We're going to do this different. Whatever's got to go, Lord, let it go. Set us free from the insatiable desire, the inextinguishable discontent. Keep our eyes upon. May we be marked by radical love and radical giving. 
lives that are completely yours, God. I said in Jesus' name. You know, I, I, I just sense, I feel like God's just stirring some people's hearts. And, you know, you can, you can just stay there. That's fine. But for me, I think it's important if God's stirring your heart to respond in some way. So if you just want to, just as that act of, of submission and surrender to him, say, yep, God, particularly in this area, here it is. Here it is, God. No more just drinking my coffee. Now, this is, this is, this is a moment where you're stirring my heart and I'm, I'm leaving this place different. I'd encourage you, just come and kneel. Just kneel at the front here. I want to come pray for you. It's just you. and that's, that's your way of saying, yes, God, here I am. Just kneel and recommit, resurrender. I invite you to do that. You can just come now. If you want prayer for anything this morning, then as others come and kneel, you just come and stand. And if you're standing, we have a prayer team. If the prayer team could come forward now, and we'd love to just pray with you. you know, there's, a, there's a Father who loves you. He's got good gifts. Whatever your prayer need is this morning, if you need breakthrough, if you need just a fresh touch of God, it's just a joy to be able to lay hands on people just see the, the good father give good gifts to his children. So if you're coming, you're standing, there's a prayer team to pray with you. For the rest of us, just come and kneel. Come on, let's be a people who activate. Let's be a people who, we're going to do this, God. Don't want to just hear a message. We're really committing our hearts and lives towards this. Radical lovers and radical 